Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today marks the 45th event since the beginning of our series and will be conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming, CEO of Edelman, Richard Edelman, and Chief Operating Officer at Edelman Gen Z Lab, Amanda Edelman. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you very much, Tom. And welcome this afternoon to clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our fellow employees and other friends of Rockefeller to what I think is going to be a terrific uh, event and conversation that I have with the Edelmans. It's my pleasure to host Richard Edelman, the CEO of Edelman, one of the largest and most prominent independent communication agencies in the world, and Amanda Edelman, the Chief Operating Officer of the Edelman Gen Z Lab for our conversation today. This will be a, a fascinating dialogue on issues of overarching interest and importance, not only to the business community, but to governments, NGOs, the media, and all of us. Now, a little bit of background on Edelman as a company, on Richard and on Amanda, and then we'll get started. Edelman has over 6,000 employees in 28 countries, major global reach and influence. One could say that when Edelman speaks, people listen. Such has been the case since Daniel J. Edelman, a former journalist and World War II public information officer, and Richard's gonna talk a little bit more about his father when we get started here, opened a small public relations practice in Chicago. Simply put, he thought he could do better than the competition at the time, and he has for decades now. Over a half a century, Dan and Richard, father and son, grew fast and global. In the 1990s, they added a research component. Dan passed away in 2013, but his spirit and legacy live on through his son and now his grandchildren, the third generation. Like the Rockefeller family, the Edelmans have and continue to make a major impact across generations. Richard's been CEO since 1996, building revenues to over $1 billion in those 26 years. Revenues have increased 11 and a half times during his tenure. And I can tell you as the CEO of a company that's growing nicely as well, 11 and a half times during his tenure, that's not easy to do. He's advised an A-list of companies through disruptions, mergers, and other events. Among them, Samsung, Starbucks, and United Airlines. He created the Trust Barometer, we're gonna get into that in a minute. He holds an MBA and bachelor's from Harvard University. And Richard's also close friends with two of our colleagues uh, here at Rockefeller Capital Management, two individuals that have worked with me for decades and whom I think very highly of, Paul Critchlow and Brian Henderson. Uh, and they've been friends and advisors and confidants for a long time, which says a lot about Richard, uh, knowing how well uh, with the views I have of both Paul and Brian. Now, Amanda Edelman joined the firm nearly two years ago. She's helped launch a new offering, providing counsel to clients looking to engage Generation Z, which as everybody knows, and Amanda's gonna get into, is the, uh, the generation now entering the workforce and that will become quickly here a dominant force in the workforce. I do think I'm a bit of an expert, maybe not like Amanda, uh, but uh, several of my children are Generation Z, so I've got some personal uh, insight there. We're privileged to have Amanda as a member of Rockefeller's Next Gen Advisory Council. Very pleased to be able to say that. Previously, Amanda worked in social enterprises, nonprofits, and with Boston Consulting. And I didn't tell you this, but I started my career at Booz Allen and Hamilton a very long time ago. She holds an MBA from Harvard. Uh, and despite the fact her father attended Harvard for college, somehow he let her go to Stanford for her undergraduate degree, uh, which we can also uh, get into at some point. So let's get started. You can see that we're fortunate to have uh, Richard and Amanda with us today. So Richard, I wanted to start with you, uh, and I will, uh, for our audience, go back and forth between Richard and Amanda. I will, as Tom said, look for questions that come in through Teams, and a number of good questions came in in advance. Uh, we only have an hour. We got a lot of material that we can cover with uh, these two uh, incredible uh, individuals. So um, it, it'll be back and forth with the two of them. So I wanna start with Richard though. 
whose uh, partnership with his father is just uh, an incredible thing. Um, if you could talk a little bit about his father, you know, the, the history of the firm. And also, he's told me that his father um, is about to get quite an honor being uh, inducted into something called the Fort Bragg Propaganda Hall of Fame. So I want, uh, Richard, if you touch on all of that for our audience here, I think it will set the backdrop for, for Edelman. So, so my dad Richard. went. So my dad went into the service uh, in 1942, and um, he was uh, trained to be a psychological warfare officer um, because he'd had a Columbia journalism degree, and um, he stayed up all night uh, listening to Nazi broadcasts. Would write a one um, a memo for General Bradley in the morning about what they said, what we should be saying back. He helped to write copy for a thing called Black Radio that was broadcast to the Nazi troops, trying to get them to uh, be destabilized leaflets. Um, and he came out of the war in 1946. He attended the Nuremberg trial, Greg. And um, actually my blog post of last week went through some of his uh, observations of some of the uh, defendants, um, including Goering, <laughs> it's chilling. Um, and then um, came uh, to work for CBS News um, and begged please to work during the day, somewhere, somehow, because he'd been up all night for six straight years. And uh, so, they said, oh, yeah, you were in PR uh, propaganda. We put you in PR doing records PR. So we walk around with a couple of bucks and, and give uh, new discs from Ella Fitzgerald or whoever, um, CBS records to the DJs. And then was discovered by a guy who ran the Tony company, which was maybe your grandma had a Tony home permanent, um, one the, the waves that you could do in your hair at home. And he invented the Tony twins, and then he put the Tony twins on the road and thereby invented the media tour. And he was a marketing genius and he recognized the power of TV very early on. And he would book media tours um, for not just the twins. He set up his own agency in 1952. Early clients were Sara Lee, California Wines, Re Lemon, um, Brunswick Bowling. And, and you know, he was a, a, a complete believer in the power of free media to enhance uh, advertising. It, and he is and, getting uh, induction Richard, into the Hall of Fame of Propaganda yeah, at Fort Bragg on April 20th, yeah. which I'm deeply proud of. And I'm going to go with my brother and sister to accept the award. And that, uh, so talk a little bit about that, because it sounds like an incredible award. And, um, you know, something, it, it, it recognizes uh, uh, public service, uh, you know, for the military and the country. So just talk a yeah. little bit about that. People will be less familiar with that. Well, my dad said that his four years in the service was the most important time in his life, um, that, you know, he was a kid who grew up uh, in, in New York City and had to be with kids from all over the country. And, and you know, he was able to make his contribution in fighting the Nazis. And uh, his deepest belief was was in the power of America as a truth teller and and as a country that, that believed in, in free media. And um, it was. It was very important to him every morning to get up and read the newspapers. He'd read four of them every morning and take out clippings and then send them to me and all the other account people and say, you know, follow up on this, do this, you know, whatever. Danagrams was his favorite expression. <laughs> you know, the the uh, the importance of people who thought like him and the role that they uh, provide yeah. uh, played for the country. I mean, it, part of where we are today is because people who believed the things that he did and the things that he did. Uh, on behalf of that country. But Greg, he also believed deeply in the power of being an entrepreneur. I mean, he would go to a PR conference, literally meet someone from uh, East Germany who just had become free because Berlin Wall had gone down and said, we don't have an office in Berlin. Would you like to <laughs> set up an office? Huh. And then we had an office in Berlin. And that's how it worked. He was just like that. And you know, he wasn't as businesslike, but he was deeply uh, charismatic and, and a great uh, sales guy. You know, Richard, we, we, I want to go to Amanda. We don't. It, we're, this hour is going to go by quickly. But I, I read for the first time over the weekend uh, a letter that Bezos sent out, his first letter and then a recent letter, and he talks about day one and day two firms. My impression of Edelman is it's a firm that's still focused on every day being day one, you know, where you don't become stale and you stay on that front foot. And it sounds like your father was the, the, the embodiment of that, and, and you've carried it on. Well, I'd like to hope so. I mean, listen, he would ride the train between Milwaukee and Chicago to see a client and take down the names of the companies with posters on the side and would write them pitch letters to try and get clients. And, and you know, I, 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 I don't quite do that, 
But, you know, when I go to a conference, I definitely have my list of who I want to meet and make sure that I find a way to do it. And, yeah, we're we're definitely still agile and hustling. Excellent. As I think you are. Yeah, well, we are actually. So agile and hustling day one, they all go hand in glove. So Amanda, let's uh, let's turn to you for just a, a second uh, on the history side. Um, you and your sisters grew up and Edelman is a huge part of your world. It's your family name, your father and your grandfather. But uh, when did you realize that the, that you were going to come work for the company? Was that always in the plan or is that something that was more recent? Mm-hmm. Tell us a little well, bit about how, how you all came to be part of now third generation Edelman. Absolutely. Well, if you talk to my dad, he will absolutely say it was always in the plan. There was never any questions about it. Of course, they have to join. They're blessed to join. Um, And all of these things are true. Absolutely. Um, But I think for each of us, I have two sisters. I think for each of us, the journey has been a little different. Um, For my two older sisters, they joined immediately out of school. For me, I worked in a couple of places before joining Edelman after my MBA. Um, And I think for each of us, we, you know, all wanted to join on our own terms um, and sort of come with the contributions that we felt would be best able to bring. Um, That being said, Edelman has been a part of our lives for a very, very long time, obviously not just in the family name, um, but from a business perspective as well. And there's a very funny story I like to tell of growing up, we'd go to my grandparents' house, Dan Edelman and my grandmother, Ruth, Um, Growing up, we would go to my grandparents' house in Chicago every Thanksgiving. And before our Thanksgiving meal, we would always have a board meeting. Um, And this started from about the time I was, I don't know, six or seven years old. So of course it wasn't a a real functional board meeting, um, but it was a way to get us exposed to the business. Uh, And so I have really, really early memories of, you know, reading through sort of financial reports, um, through strategy decks from a really young age about the business. And so um, I like to think that, you know, was our dad's way of recruiting us, uh, you know, even if we weren't fully aware of what was going on. Um, but we've been exposed to the business, you know, both on the personal and sort of more business oriented side from a really young age. Uh, and of course, being that um, deep and sort of having that personal connection um, makes it such a pleasure to work there. Well, I love that story. Your father got a lot of things right. I think that's another <laughs> thing to to kind of pull you in at that early age. Uh, yeah. Uh, I can't I can't think of a better way to do it. But mm-hmm. let me, let me jump in um, to uh, to many of the substantive things we're we're going to go through. So, Richard, we've got to start with the 23rd annual Edelman Trust Barometer, which you released in Davos in uh, January, uh, with the uh, top 10 findings. Um, and we could spend the whole program on, on all 10, but can can you talk a little bit about the two or three that you find most compelling? And obviously you wrote all 10, so, you know, you, yeah. you and the team, uh, but if you pick two or three out and and, uh, and walk us through why uh, that's most compelling for us here in 2023. So, Greg, the first is that business is the most trusted institution in the world that by five to one, um, people want more business, not less, on sustainability, race and diversity, geopolitics, wages and reskilling. But there's a big watch out sign on some other issues like voting rights, abortion, gun control, where you can speak to your employees, but to be a public advocate, be careful. The second big finding is the mass class divide, where you see a deep division between the top 25 and bottom 25% of population. It is now transversal. It used to be US, UK, and France. Now in three quarters of the 28 countries we study, we have a 10 or more point delta in opinion. Also in China, it's now 20 points. In Saudi Arabia, it's 20 points. In Thailand, it's 35 points. So you can no longer say this is just a thing in the democracies. It's now everywhere. It's even in the autocracies. And it's a function of the pandemic. It's also a function of inflation. Um, People are aggravated in the bottom quartile. I think the last really is the battle for truth, the extent to which there's a real disconnect with global media, that um, social media is trusted 30, 35%, even 15% in some of the developed markets. Um, Two thirds of people actually say they think that uh, media chases clicks, that it's not uh, truthful, that it uh, is actually more about business than it is about facts. in a world which is desperate for truth. And I only quote to you what Bolsonaro said at the CPAC meeting over the weekend in which he said, freedom, 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 instead of science, science, science. And I say this because it really worries me that there's this sort of 
you know, binary position between freedom and science. I think science enhances freedom and we have to make the case now for science. Um, but anyway, the battle for truth is, is the third big finding. Those are, uh, we're, we're gonna hopefully have time to explore all three. I wanna uh, take the, the first one and then go to Amanda and keep coming back. Yeah. But the first one um, being um, the shift in trust to business and away from government. What's driven that? Uh, and and, um, and that, that's something that's generally true across different countries as well. So if you think of a two by two consultants graph, business is the only one seen as both competent and ethical. And you might say, well, how is that possible? Well, actually business has had a really good last three years. It's moved from the bottom right um, on that graph where it was seen as very competent, but not so ethical, straight up to being ethical. Why? Good performance in the pandemic, came up with good drugs, et cetera, kept people working, kept them fed. Second, the reaction to George Floyd's murder, taking DEI very seriously. And then the third is more than a thousand companies have exited Russia since the Ukraine invasion. And it's a deep moment because only 250 companies got out in 20 years of apartheid protests, four times as many companies in one year. So it's a matter of competence uh, and ethics. Yeah, and Richard, that's a that's something true in the United States, but but more broadly as well in other countries. Across, uh, it's, around it's the really, world. it's really across the world that, that that business is now seen as able to get stuff done while government can't, and yeah. people are just we we have problems, fix it, and and, yeah. and it's in business's remit to do this in sustainability or wages and things like this. You know, it's hard to argue with the the general premise, no matter no matter who you are. Um, Richard, the um, uh, certainly in our careers, uh, yours and mine, um, you know, more recent generation, uh, and, and Amanda can talk to this, they've seen a different world. But, you know, if we go back to the late 1980s, when I started uh, at, uh, at as a manager consultant, there was um, a focus on shareholder value. And if you were the CEO of a company, you were supposed to drive the share price. And that was pretty much what you were supposed to do, kind of the Chicago school you do yeah. that and you take care of that. And, you know, other things are for, you know, different parts of your life or constituents. Um, that There's been a major shift on that now in terms of what does the CEO and senior management, what should they be focused on? What should they be talking to their employees and their clients about? Um, can you talk a little bit about that shift over the last 30 sure. or 40 years and the um, and how you think it's also going to settle going forward? Is it is it going to, you know, start turning back a little bit or is this here to stay? So, one of the big questions I got in Davos was, uh, look at what DeSantis is doing with the Florida Pension Fund. Should we start pulling back from ESG? Should we just focus on the E? Let's let's ignore the S and you know the G. And I said, don't do that. Every sign is showing that, in fact, two-thirds of consumers are now belief-driven buyers. I'm only going to buy from brands where they stand up and speak up for us. Two-thirds of employees say, I only want to work for companies you know, Unilever, whoever, who are actually uh, acting on these important issues around the world. So uh, the, and, 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 and Greg, our research on trust shows that 85% of shareholders say that ESG is an important part of their decision about buying shares, whether it's a retail investor or an institutional investor. So again, I think it's become politicized, but smart CEOs will stay the course and continue to focus on ESG. You know, Richard, uh, uh, from a personal standpoint, uh, I, 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 we, we agree wholeheartedly with you here at Rockefeller. And one of the reasons we do uh, is in, in part, I believe uh, the insight that me and others have into the generations coming behind us. My children are all in their 20s. They and their friends are not going to adopt a different perspective on ESG uh, as they move forward. This is not, you know, kind of the baby boom, maybe uh, changing over time coming out of Woodstock. I, I think this is secular, but it does transition me to Amanda, who is uh, both a member of Generation Z and has done tremendous research there. So Amanda, um, uh, tell me about and tell us our listeners about uh, Generation Z. Uh, and actually, Amanda, frame it because people have heard mm -hmm. it, but when did it start? When did it end? Um, what, you know, some insight into their perspectives, goals, what defines them, and then we'll get into how they differ from prior generations, but uh, give the Generation Z overview for the for the group here. 
Yeah, absolutely. So demographically, Gen Z is the generation born between 1997 and 2012, so this 15-year period. Um, Gen Z at this point comprises 2 billion people across the world. Um, obviously, these numbers are you know, higher in developing countries, slightly lower in developed countries like the United States, UK, etc. Um, and they're coming into enormous discretionary spending power um, and even starting in political power. I don't know how many people saw, but the first Gen Zer was actually elected to Congress this year. His name is Maxwell Frost, um, and he was elected in Florida. Um, so, you know, this is a generation that is starting to take a lot of, uh, you know, is starting to rise in its power. Um, we've done a lot of research around Gen Z, and by far the most interesting part of their story is that it's a generation that uh, gravitates towards safety an enormous amount. And when you look at the forces that have shaped this generation, this absolutely makes sense. This is a generation that first came of age during the financial crisis of 2008. Many of them were very, very young when it happened. Um, and they saw their families and parents have enormous economic downturns because of this. Um, this is obviously a generation that's been deeply impacted by COVID. Many of them were in school, whether high school, middle school, or even college, um, but who you know saw a lot of issues in their world arise because of COVID and, and frankly saw the fragility of many uh, important institutions. Um, and lastly, this is a generation deeply concerned about climate change um, and who are frankly very anxious about the way the global world is coming together to respond to it. So when we look at these forces together, a lot of Gen Z's insights or a lot of Gen Z's motivators and beliefs make a lot of sense. This is a generation that sort of wants the world to change, needs the world to change, and is looking at who the best partner for that could be. Um, and so my dad mentioned, of course, there is a decrease in trust in government um, and an increase in trust in business. This is absolutely the case for Gen Z. Uh, and again, when you think of sort of their most salient um, issues that are facing them, there's been an absolute or, or there's been um, sort of a failure in government to address them. You know, being here in the United States and looking at our lackluster governmental response to COVID, uh, but on the other hand, looking at the ways that a lot of U.S.-based companies or companies with large distribution arms in the U.S. Um, were able to pull out vaccines, it's clear who is better able to respond to sort of these impending issues. Um, so as a result, Gen Z is frankly looking at uh, businesses as a better partner for change than government as well. Um, so these are sort of the, the issues that are facing Gen Z today and some of the big factors facing them. Um, I think another really interesting factor for Gen Z is sort of what they look for in the workplace. And I know that that was an area that you and I had discussed previously. Uh, and there's three things that I mostly want to highlight here. The first is that Gen Z is very, very trusting of their employers, which may actually surprise a lot of people. Um, and actually, you know, they're on par with other generations with high trust, but actually have slightly higher trust than other generations for their employers at 81%. Um, the second thing is Gen Z is very purpose driven. I don't think that this will surprise anyone, but they, you know, they like to match their values with their wallets in terms of how they buy. Um, <clears throat> so they want to buy from companies that uh, you know, align with their values. They want to work at companies that align with their values. These things are, you know, very, very clear. And again, I'm sure not surprising for anyone on this call. Um, and then the last thing I want to highlight is how deeply influential Gen Z across many generations. So it's not enough that this generation has 2 billion people across the globe. It's that they're deeply influential across a lot of areas that companies care about. Um, and one that I, that I think you'll find very interesting is that 63% of the general population says that Gen Z influences workplace norms. And this is particularly applicable around companies or individuals expecting companies to address societal issues um, and even internal issues related to DNI and uh, in, in areas like that. Um, and the number for each of those hovers in sort of the low 60s. So 62% of, of the population says Gen Z influences what I expect from my company to address social norms. Um, <clears throat> so again, Gen Z is a generation that is deeply purpose-oriented and is sort of normalizing that across generations in the way that people buy, in what companies expect from their employers, even the way people save and invest, actually. Um, so it's a very, very influential generation, interestingly enough. And Amanda, as you said, two billion. So you know, you're talking about 30% uh, of the world's population. I mean, what an enormous mm -hmm. impact. Um, one of the things that I wanted to follow up on, uh, and again, I, I, my, uh, two of my children are Gen Z and one is just one year removed from it, uh, a late millennial. Um, I wanted to, to talk to you about uh, the differences between millennials and Gen Z. Uh, and Gen Z, the millennials, particularly earlier, but uh, you know, even the later ones, the iPhone was 2007. 
Gen Z was clearly these are digital natives. The iPhones out, you know, by the they were, you know, ten years old when when the iPhone the oldest ones were ten years old when the iPhone came out. Um, because they're digital natives, and is this a difference or not with millennials? Are they susceptible to misinformation? Because you know the 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 whole you know you read it, it's it's true or it's pushed. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. And that's been I think one of the things that causes people to kind of lean on Generation Z. Uh, I'm always the the defender and the advocate because that you know that's my children. But anyway, uh, how are they different from millennials? And since they are the first digital natives, can you you know is there this notion of misinformation? Can 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 they be played with that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So uh, I'll answer that in two ways. The first is that of all the changes that we're seeing, of course, there's a spectrum. So the relative differences between Gen Z and millennials are smaller than the relative differences between Gen Z and Gen X, Gen Z and Boomers. That being said, there are quite robust differences. And I think it goes exactly to your point of Gen Z is really the first generation that's that's um, digital natives. There's a crazy stat that says 98% of Gen Z grew up with a smartphone. That's unbelievable. Um, and I think the biggest byproduct of that is the generation is deeply globally unified. So for the trust barometer and, and sort of studies that we do, obviously we pull across a variety of countries and nations to ensure we're getting sort of a globally representative sample. Um, and so, you know, we pulled across a variety of different countries, you know, across different continents, across developed and developing, um, and we found the data to be extremely consistent regardless of where you were from. Um, the one exception I'll say is China, where sort of scores were higher across the board, but, um, you know, that's, we tend to see that, um, that's it, a bit expected, but, you know, in very diverse countries, sort of scores were consistent. Um, and we, we believe that this is because people are seeing the same content uh, in a way on their smartphones that no prior generations have seen. So instead of getting not just your news, but all of your cultural references, your information locally, you have Gen Zers in Korea seeing the same thing as Gen Zers in Germany, seeing the same thing as Gen Zers in Thailand, in the US, Argentina, et cetera. They're listening to the same songs, they are seeing the same videos. Um, and so, you know, it's not to un it is not to underestimate the importance of, in some ways, the cultural homogeneity that social media provides for this generation. So that's number one, and particularly how this generation is different from millennials. Number two, to your question on misinformation, um, we have a really interesting stat that says 70% of Gen Zers will always fact check what you say. And when they say fact check, it means that they will check, you know, you claim that XYZ is happening. They will fact check that with two other sources. Um, and this is because, again, this is a generation that's grown up uh, as social or as digital natives. Um, and so they know that not all information that's out there is correct. Um, and so time and time again, we've sort of seen or been pleasantly surprised with how um, uh, digitally savvy this generation is against any sort of misinformation um, because of their smart digital habits. And again, it sort of boils down to the fact that they grew up on social media, the fact that they grew up digital natives. Excellent. Uh, that's really insightful and, and I think spot on based upon um, my my personal uh, uh, history. Um, Richard, let's go back to you for a second and, um, uh, uh, and, and talk about um, the um, Battle for truth in society, as you uh, mentioned, that tremendously diminished trust in media. Uh, what's going on here? I mean, some of it is 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 clear to uh, to all of us, but um, what's going on here? Uh, and and can you walk through this a little bit? So I think it starts with business model, Greg. Um, I think that um, you've seen a reduction of uh, force in the newsrooms by two thirds. Um, literally, where I grew up in Chicago, the Tribune has one quarter as many journalists as before uh, because their economics are bad. Uh, they, they, they've lost uh, a lot of their advertising. Uh, the second problem is I think that government and media are in a bit of a death clench. Um, and uh, the media has unfortunately gotten into the habit of covering the most controversial politicians. So when President Trump would tweet, there would be a story on Fox and then there would be a counter story on CNN and we'd be back into a spin cycle about what the president tweeted. And I don't think that that's journalism myself, but it creates heat and it creates viewership and it creates a sense of presentness. Of, and, and, and so um, 
cable TV has not been a good thing for media in the sense that it's exacerbated the divides and it's caused this uh, theory of kind of newstainment where you're having news and entertainment merge and the more kind of um, outrageous the content, the more you know viewers get involved and then it pings back and forth with social. So that which is on your TV screen then goes into social. So I argue that media needs to move back to its former position of authority instead of chasing clicks. Now, this has business model implications because again, CNN, when it moved to the middle, lost a third of its viewers. It moved from the left to the middle, boom. And then they did cost cuts. So the fact of, um, of media is, I actually think information is gonna have to be supplemented by government, by business, and by NGOs that media can't do it alone. Enough people have signed off of media. So New York City, for example, is going direct to citizens with its own newsletter, City of Chicago the same, because local coverage has diminished. And I think companies have a privileged position, Greg. The most credible source of information is my company's newsletter, which is a shocking outgrowth of the pandemic. And it's more believed than the media, because it's not political. You know, it's what RCM says to its thousands of employees about where you can get a vaccine or, you know, here's the latest data on, on, on vaccine coverage and use it. Similarly, NGOs have a important role to play in this because they have expertise on sustainability in other areas. So media with surround sound. You know, so so how, how might that look, Richard, if we play it out a little bit? Because, you know, you can see this in... Uh... Uh, and 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 I I think this exists as you just said. Uh, you know th these business models now are trying to hold the viewers. So you know you see in the in the lawsuit that's going on with Fox, the you know wanting to stay with themes because that that's what the viewers want to hear. That's that's really almost television as opposed to media. So what's the model? How does it look here in, in ten years? You know, do we have a BBC created? But you know, back to what you and Amanda are talking about, though. Do people you know? Would they have confidence in the government if it was sponsoring, uh, you know, news? Uh, uh, you know, so what, what, what's the ultimate, you know, how will this look in five or 10 years? Well, I know, for example, that Sky TV is going to try to go global and try to be a middle ground um, place. And th that they see that as a business option or an opportunity. I don't think it has to be government-owned media. That's what the Brits will tell you. I don't agree with that. Um, I think... We have to make sure that that brands, companies sponsor and support media platforms that tell the truth. And that's the number one driver, in addition to audience advertising. And it, it needs to be the ultimate kind of, of, of uh, corporate social responsibility. Because if we don't have quality information, you can be sure democracy is gonna be in trouble. Not just because of Russian disinformation, but because we're in our own uh, spin cycle. And, yeah. you know, people have moved to thought bubbles. I'm only going to listen to the left. I'm only going to listen to the right. Um, and interesting, Greg, the only place you can have a good quality conversation about hard issues is at the workplace. Isn't that shocking? You can't even do it in your neighborhood now because the guy over the fence or the woman is politicized and feels, you know, you've been too woke or too, you know, angry or, you know, whatever it is. The workplace has taken on such an important role in society. Um, it's not just that we work more, it's that, 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 you know, and I'm glad that people are coming back to the office, actually, this is a little editorial here, um, because actually it is the ultimate melting pot. It is the place where you can actually find people from all kinds of walks of life and you have to get along with them. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I'll say two things here. One, can you believe, Richard, given where we were earlier in our careers, that that statement you just made, the, the, the place where you can no. come and have the the you know the debate most easily is a workplace which would just not have been in anybody's yeah. conception in the late 80s or 90s um and i agree with you wholeheartedly on people back to work at rockefeller we collaborate and and you know when we were talking about coming back to work throughout the pandemic and um encouraging people when it was safe and we knew it was safe it was about the 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 uh, the work that they can do together to come up with better ideas and better serve clients who come visit us in our offices, and you know and and function in a dynamic environment uh, where ideas are are easily interchanged, as you said. So I agree with you on getting people back in. So, and yeah, go ahead. 
So great. Just on information, one other thing. We did a study on health um, for last spring, and one of the very important findings is we've now moved into two separate groups. The group that actually appreciates top-down information flow, Dr. Fauci, CDC, et cetera. And then there's another group that actually absolutely detests any information from authority figures and needs to get it from his or her pastor, the pharmacist, the local MD. So it is the ground game or the air game. And it's two completely different groups, depending on what your trust level is in institutions. It's amazing. Uh, thank you. I'm going to shift back to Amanda. We didn't quite finish the generations because one of my colleagues sent in a question that I was curious about. Uh, be interesting to see what you say on this. Um, uh, as um, I am a late uh, stage baby boomer and I've got those Gen Z kids. Um, uh, Jill uh, Rosamino, who's in uh, uh, head of talent acquisition for us, so it's an informed view, asks, uh, what are the similarities uh, between boomers and Gen Z? Uh, and what are the differences and how can they bridge the gap? Absolutely. So I love that you asked that question because there are far more similarities than people think. Um, so I gave a presentation in, in Germany uh, in October and there, I sort of led with this idea of the post-war baby boomers are very, very similar to Gen Z. And basically, the thinking here is that there's not been a generation that's dealt with as much sociopolitical unrest, you know, geopolitical conflict. Think about the war in Ukraine. Obviously, for the boomers, it was um, uh, Vietnam. Um, so these are generations that are very different. And obviously, when you think about the late 60s, I think before your time, Greg, but... Um, uh, when you think about the late 60s, you know, that was a very progressive generation. You know, boomers for a really long time were sort of hailed as this very progressive generation. And that's who Gen Z is at their core. They're a generation that's reeling from all of these societal issues that are happening right now and are sort of um, uh, making these adversarial demands in, re in reaction to all of these issues. So it's actually, there's a lot in common between these generations and it's really helpful to see them as parallel. Um, and this is something I'm very intellectually interested in is the path that Gen Z has going forward. Um, and obviously for boomers, you look over time, they've sort of become more conservative, uh, broadly speaking, both in terms of voting patterns, but also just in terms of ideology, more broadly. Um, and this is something that I'm obviously keeping a very close eye on for, for Gen Z, both um, for professional reasons, but also out of personal interest is sort of over time, you know, how does this generation start to behave as they get a little older um, and really come into responsibility? And this is something we're actually looking to explore in the, in the near future is this idea of Gen Z as a very young generation. They've always acted um, without a sense of power. So, you know, they've made these demands because they don't have the power to change things. But as they come into power, again, using this example of the first Gen Z congressman um, and looking at this generation as they start to take on more responsibility in the workplace, um, as they start to have more and more discretionary income um, in the next 20 or so years when we have a giant sort of wealth transfer between boomers and millennials and Gen Z, um, how all those things change their behavior. Um, so I absolutely do think that there's a lot of similarities, but uh, you know, the differences that they have right now, I think are, are due to um, obviously their age difference. And so I'm very curious to see how that develops. That's a tremendous answer. I mean, I have to say very interesting because I, to, to be honest with you until now and uh, Jill asking the question, you answering it, it's very logical what you just laid out because yeah. the experiences, because part of what shapes a generation, right? They, they say it starts on this date and ends on that date because the things that happen in that time frame are shared experiences and create a shared approach to the world. Yeah. There, there are a lot of shared uh, experiences between uh, baby boomers and Gen Z in terms of the shocks yeah. that you talked about. I do appreciate yeah. you, Amanda, pointing out that the late 60s uh, was before my time, which Don't mostly worry. it was. <laughs> So, and, um, um, Greg, if I if I could say yeah, actually one more thing please. that just came to mind, um, <clears throat> I think the other really interesting uh, similarity is uh, a change in media as well. Um, so if you think of the late 60s, if you think of the Vietnam War, that was the first war famously that was televised and that spurred enormous reaction in the United States against the war. 
if you think of Gen Z, this is the first generation that has seen things instantaneously on social media. So the war in Ukraine has been dubbed the first war to be fought over TikTok, because that is where people are going to get public sympathy, public reaction. And so I think that's another huge similarity between these generations is the source of media that they're intaking and sort of how that's changing how they interact with the world and their public perception. That's fantastic. I, I 100% right, too, I think. That's really interesting. Uh, I'm going to shift back to Richard um, uh, on, uh, on Class Divide, uh, which when you laid this out for me again, I, I was fascinated to hear the breadth and the the difference in, in societies that nonetheless had the same Class Divide. And you listed the United States, France, China, or I, I did. You had a longer list, but I wrote down just to pick four societies that are very different in, in so many ways, but have this underlying similarity, United States, France, China, and Saudi Arabia. How many topics could we say that they were very similar on? I would bet it's not that long a list. Can you talk about this class divide uh, and, and um, why it's everywhere and what the implications are going forward, Richard? So I think the first thing, Greg, is expectations of economy and will my family be better off in five years? And I think in both the case of France and the United States, you have under a third of the people believe that they'll be better off. Now in Saudi and China, there's high belief that they'll be better off. Where in China and in Saudi, there is the first evidence of, you know, I'm not sure this society is fair. I'm not sure I can be from lower class to upper class. Um, the entire society may be progressing, but I can't. So you've heard this in the United States that uh, you know if you're in the bottom quartile, you'll never ever get out of it. Um, but again, in those two developing markets, um, the experience of the last uh, three years uh, from pandemic to inflation has been corrosive. And even with high trust in government, which both of those countries have, China and Saudi, um, there's the beginnings of lower trust for business. So unlike the US and France, where government is blamed, it is business that's being blamed in Saudi and in China for whatever ills of society. So in part, it's a different system. Um, you know, we grew up capitalists, so we believe in this system. It's not clear that they believe in system. They not so so Xi made a big effort in China to say, I'm going to stamp out corruption. I'm going to push down the private sector. There's going to be more fairness in society. He's reacting to this sentiment in the bottom quartile. Yeah. So uh, there's a follow-on question that uh, my colleague Jen Sins down in uh, Atlanta sent Richard for you. Uh, this year's report finds that economic optimism has collapsed globally. You just discussed it. Um, do you see this trending downward further and how can optimism be restored? So I think that's one of the great objectives for government in the next five years. If I had to say my homework assignment, um, it is prove, for example, that the Inflation Reduction Act um, is going to improve the situation for all. That, that, that green economy is not gonna come at the expense of higher prices. That in fact, it's gonna create good jobs. It's going to be something improving fairness um, as opposed to you know more premium products. You know, Greg, I paid $8 for a box of dog food yesterday for, for one meal, just, just to give you a sense of, and now I was shopping in Soho to be frank and fair, and it was one of those boutique stores, but I just thought, my dog's got a good life and it was, but, <laughs> the, the, but the point, Archie has a great life, but the premiumization of products is a great business theory. But if you think about it as a matter of society, the, the, the bifurcation between the top and bottom needs not, it, it's not a survivable situation. I'm all for people making money, be very clear about this. But I do think everyone's got to feel they have a chance. No question. That's been at the heart of this country since, you know, we started our careers yes. and for a lot long before then, and it, it better stay there after us or uh, it's a whole different situation. So I couldn't agree more with that summary. Um, Amanda, I'm going to come back to you with a question that my colleague Jack Ryan sent in. 
what do you find to be the most credible sources of news and facts today? And he's yeah, asking absolutely. you specifically, your father obviously has views, but he wants to know the Gen <laughs> Z view. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, I, I am the real expert, so. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, uh, well, our, I mean, our viewers couldn't see your father uh, laugh and roll his eyes a little, so it's, uh, yeah. keep going. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so for me personally, I am much more of a traditionalist because I am, for two reasons, number one, I'm, I'm in the industry that I'm in. Um, and then number two, as my dad just talked about, there is a, a clear class divide in terms of the information that people trust. Um, and so I am firmly in a socioeconomic bracket that tends to place more trust in media. So that is sort of skewing my personal uh, areas of trust, which is you know traditional news. I trust traditional news. That being said, when you look at Gen Z, Gen Z deeply trusts information that comes from social media. This is not going to surprise anyone. But what is really surprising is that um, social media is starting to supplant even search engines like Google for how Gen Zers get their information. So actually, there's a really crazy stat that literally says more Gen Zers now are turning to TikTok to search for things than Google, um, which is absolutely fascinating. And so Google, I mean, uh, TikTok is actually the first point of entry to find information. Um, we have a couple of interesting uh, um, stats around sort of the amount of time people spend on various social platforms versus the amount that they trust them. Um, and so people spend the most amount of time on TikTok, but among the top five social platforms, they actually trust it the least. So it's less than 50% trusted, um, which again, sort of dovetails with this idea that Gen Z is able to root out misinformation very well. The most trusted platform is YouTube, um, which again may be surprising to some. Um, so to sort of square these two things together, I'd say the order goes YouTube, um, uh, YouTube is number one, and then sort of other prominent social platforms ranking somewhere in the middle, like Instagram, Twitter, and um, uh, Facebook. Um, but it's all on social media. It's all through social media. Again, I don't think this is going to surprise anyone, but very few Gen Zers are turning to traditional news outlets. Um, I will say that there is an interesting synergy between traditional news and TikTok, um, where, you know, a lot of news platforms are now uh, putting content on social media. A lot of influencers are citing news uh, news content. So it's not like all the information they're receiving is divorced from sort of traditional media. It's just in a totally different format. Um, and I think that there's interesting ways that sort of news platforms can exploit that for future or, or take advantage of that and understand that for future generations. Yeah, Amanda, let me just extend that for a second with you. So will Gen Z, as, as they get older, I mean, what happens to traditional media as they get older since they basically don't use it at all? You yeah. know, and maybe there's a way that they can, as you're saying, access it again through social media. But will traditional media, you know, are, are, is, when Gen, when the average Gen Z is 40, is traditional media going to be watched by very few people? I think it will evolve, you know, in the way that media has continued to evolve over the past few decades. Its current form, you know, for example, for me, and I'm sure for many millennials and many other people, they don't really read print media. And I'm sure 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever the timeline was, that was a huge kerfuffle in the industry of, oh my God, news is changing, news is changing. Um, so I think news is in continuous evolution. So I think it's a, a bit false to think of it as, you know, a dramatic cliff right now. Um, so it will, continue, it will continue to evolve, basically in the way that it's evolved from print media and out of digital, I think it's just going to become more short form. Um, and this is also frankly, because a lot of Gen Zers, they've gotten so used to absorbing everything in short form content on their screens. Um, uh, and like another good example is that people are going to movie theaters less. Again, indicative of sort of people can't really sit there for two plus hours and, and listen to something. Short form content is ideal. Um, so I don't necessarily believe that traditional media uh, will cease to exist. I think it will continue to evolve. Um, and it, I mean, they'll have to be smart uh, or they'll be smart and sort of need to evolve, basically. That's, a, again, very interesting. Uh Richard, back to you, a question that I think uh, you'll find interesting that I'd love to hear your answer to. And this is from Heather Reich, one of our private advisors down in Atlanta. Both Edelman and Rockefeller's businesses are built on the value of, of advice we provide to clients. We talk about it all the time here as that is the essence of why we're here. And in fact, if we don't provide better advice and counsel uh, and insight to our clients, then ultimately there's no Rockefeller. How important does the value of this advice become in an environment like the the one we're in today, uh, uh, more or less? And is that uh, uh, a trend that's going to continue? 
So I think for us, the most important task is to persuade clients to act and not just communicate. That um, CVS taking the cigarettes out of stores uh, six years ago was a singular act of brilliant responsibility, but also huge business building opportunity because it enabled them to imagine um, merging with Aetna and then um, just buying Oak Street Health so that they're now a healthcare company. Couldn't have done that if they, as Walgreens has, continued to sell cigarettes. And similarly, going to Unilever and saying, you know, during the pandemic, we found, because it was the 100th anniversary Good Humor Bars, that uh, Turkey in the Straw, Turkey in the Hay, which I used to sing to Amanda, because like a dope, I didn't know. Um, it turns out to be a racist minstrel song, and it was on all the ice cream trucks. And we said, you got to get rid of this. And we got Riza um, from Wu-Tang Clan to do a, a new song within a month, and we put it up on ice cream trucks right away and said, this is what we've done, it's, we, you know, and we're fixing things. And so clients need to be agile and um, and I, I would hope that you would encourage your clients, as we do, to act in whatever way in the financial markets behind uh, change. Well, that's a great uh, uh, way to way to answer it. And actually, we do best with clients, and clients see the value of the advice most in difficult times because you're telling them yes. to act potentially in ways when they would not necessarily instinctively do that, given that it's our business and not theirs. So that is an example of as doing exactly what you said, telling them what we think they need to hear, even if it's something that uh, you know is, is uh, something that they really don't want to. Um, uh, maybe I can talk to both of you about this because uh, given the multi-generational uh, nature of this, it's just uh, an obvious and interesting question. You both clearly have enormous pride uh, in Edelman. Should, I mean, there just aren't many stories. Richard, you and I talked about this zero to, Six or seven thousand employees, you know, zero to over a billion dollars in revenue. So many years, so much impact. Uh, man managing to do this and to keep the brand as high as it is in terms of uh, respect mm -hmm. and trust, and in an area where it's hard to do that. Um, so, what's it like to work in a family business like that together? Uh, you know, we'll start with Richard, and then we'll go to Amanda. So, second generation and now third. Um, Richard, what, what's it like to, to have your daughters in this business? Well, to start working for my old man and then my brother and sister joining in. So all three of us in that generation worked. Um, and now G3 is all in the business. It's the greatest possible compliment that can be paid both to my father and to me. And I feel lucky. I just was in a new business meeting with my eldest, um, pitching a client here. And now I'm on with Amanda today. This is like sports fantasy for me. I mean, I, I'm like in <laughs> spring training. <laughs> it's awesome. And uh, no, it's it's a dream come true, honestly, Greg, and to work with your kids and give them enough rope to make their own mistakes. Let them, you know, wander off to, you know, as my father did with me, you know. Um, I mean, I remember if you can believe this, announcing that we had won the EF Hutton account before the PR guy had told the boss and we got fired before we won. You know, so <laughs> I, I, learned, I learned never to do that again. You know, you just have to make your own mistakes. And I called my father and said, you idiot, don't do that again. You know, it's okay. <laughs> I, you, yeah. you can't imagine some stuff. I never, I never knew about non-competition agreements. Believe it. And I had some people walk out with clients. I said, what are you doing? You can't do that. And they said, you didn't have a non-compete. I learned to get a non-compete. You learn by making mistakes. You got to let them have their rope. Well, that's a great answer, boy. And I'd say that from a personal standpoint, I, 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 my children and I are close. I can't think of anything better in the way you all have done it. But Amanda, what about from your perspective? Absolutely. So <clears throat> my dad lives in New York um, and I moved to London. I'll let that sink in. No, no, no. I'm, I'm kidding. You, you um, wanted some space. I had 733 yeah. miles to, to Chicago. I get it. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I lived no, in New York. No, no, my dad was in Chicago. I, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously kidding. I, um, it's been an enormous privilege. Is the best way to describe it. I actually started my career working um, not on Edelman in a couple of startups for my MBA before joining. Um, so I feel even better saying this, sort of given the. Um, the difference and counterfactual that I've had. Um, it's incredible. It's great being able to, you know, discuss areas of interest with my dad, with my sisters. Um, we're obviously deeply invested, you know, personally and emotionally in the business in a way that 
uh, is hard to replicate for for other people. Um, and so it's really it's really amazing, sort of having this shared family connection and bond. And and really, there's nothing like it. But Greg, but honestly, uh, you know, it's not it's not without um, its challenges because you know. There are more than 6,000 people here. They all have to have confidence in my kids. I ultimately are gonna have to decide, you know, do I have a professional manager? I pray to God one or more of them can run the business. Um, but, you know, it's a service business and, you know, they trust Greg Fleming, they trust Richard Edelman. They're gonna have to trust the next Edelman or, you know, the company's gonna go backward and I don't want that. So they all have to learn and get trained. Well, I mean, uh, the, the, your the, your clear-headed view of it. Um, the, I have great confidence in the in the next transition, yeah. given the individuals yeah. I'm hearing here and the way that you think about it. I got a great question uh, in from a client that I'm going to squeeze in here uh, because I'm fascinated by your answer, Mark Reich, who's a client of ours. What are your thoughts about how deep fakes that are getting better and better will impact trust in news? And it is amazing, uh, as something that can pop up that looks like it's 100% accurate. And it's completely made up. Maybe I'll start, Richard, with you on that. I mean, I even saw a uh, representation of Obama that um, was a deep fake, which was stunningly good. Um, and, you know, him announcing some crazy policy. It was just done as a demo. Um, I think ChatGBT can be a great force for good and also can be a deep force for disinformation. I think we're going to actually have to get to much better media literacy. And we're going to have to be very careful to do what Gen Zers do, which is to check. Um, I mean, I got caught out in a fake about the uh, statue in Hudson Yards, which was, you know, rumored to be closed because people were jumping off. And I wrote the guy who was the architect and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Thomas. And he wrote back, it's not closed. And I went, oh, you idiot. <laughs> you know, I was caught myself like a tool. But, you know, you have to check these things. It's amazing. It's an amazing world where it's not it's not on you. It's the world. I mean, that, it, that's going to be a very challenging topic for all of us. Um, let, let me transition to something better, Richard, with you. Uh, uh, and you do a lot of this at home, but you do this uh, throughout your life as somebody who's had such a storied career. What advice do you give young people today and how has that evolved over the course of your career, given the tremendously different world today from the one you and I started in? First, have a breakfast or lunch every day with someone who you don't know. Um, make sure that you meet, you know, in, a, in a, a, a networking manner. Second, make sure you do philanthropy. Make sure that you're out doing charities um, and, and give, of, give of yourself. I've learned so much from the Ad Council or Children's Aid Society, things like this. And lastly, keep in shape. I know, Greg, you're a jock. I've really impressed this on my kids to be fit. Um, so that you can be mentally fit too, but be physically fit. I work out every day because I don't sleep otherwise, but you know, Amanda, you probably have different advice. Well, I'm going to ask her a slightly different question, but I do agree with you that the, uh, and we try to create the environment for our employees here to be able to take care of themselves physically and mentally and in every way, because uh, that's the, you know so important for them to be able to be here and to be uh, additive and, uh, you know, and to feel good about it, which, you know, so uh, diet and exercise and things like that are, and that's one of the great things about 2023, how high yeah. on a list that is for so many people. I mean, that's a yeah. real positive change over the generations. But Amanda, um, slightly different, I, I and, and this was somewhat generational the way I asked it, but I, I think it's fair. What advice do you appreciate hearing early in your career? Uh, and um, what do you think you'll be saying later in your career to the people asking you uh, for, for counsel as someone who's been, been doing it longer and longer? Absolutely. So two main things. The first is always have hustle. Um, and it's pretty clear that that directly came from my dad. Um, and this can apply in many ways, which is either, uh, you know, trying to drum up new business, trying to expand your network, but whatever you're doing, just always have hustle. And that's something that's very much taken to heart. Um, and the second thing is enjoy what you do. It's very simple, but if you don't, then you won't put as much passion in it. You won't, um, uh, your output will be worse. Um, and so it's always very important to just enjoy what you're doing and not just do it for the sake of success, but to do it because it's what you love. And uh, if you put yourself out farther and in, in you're uh, you're in your father's seat in, in, uh, yeah. in some amount of years, uh, what do you think you'll be saying to the younger generation? Maybe the same things. I think it's the same thing. I, I think it's the same thing. It's important. It's basically like love what you do and work your ass off. Those are really the two mantras to live by, I think, at and, least. And read. Read books. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, listen, uh, it's been uh, tremendous having the two of you and the tag team and the obvious connectivity, affection, and, and even the pokes and the smiles. Uh, what a what a great multi-generational, uh, impactful organization you've built around your family name. We know a lot about that at Rockefeller. These families that do things over many generations, as you probably know, we're in our seventh generation of Rockefellers. Uh, there are over 300 of them today. They are uh, shareholders in Rockefeller Capital Management. Many of your clients, David Rockefeller Jr. and Peter O'Neill sit on our board. It's an incredible family. Uh, and the Edelmans are uh, uh, creating a, a, a trajectory and a legacy like that as well. So thank you both for being here. It was terrific. I always end on a quotation uh, that I think is uh, relevant to the dialogue. Uh, and um, uh, mine's going to be Thomas Edison today. Uh, and I say it because the vision of, of, uh, of your uh, grandfather and father, and then the way that you've implemented him, Richard, and now the next generation over time, really hard to do, to have both vision and, and the uh, execution as well as you've done. So Thomas Edison said, quote, vision without execution is hallucination. Uh, and Edelman has had that vision that you're that the founder uh, that you're so proud of uh, started with but has executed over many decades very hard to do so bravo edelman's thank you both for being here thank you to our clients colleagues and friends of rockefeller for joining us today and we look forward to seeing you soon on another uh, episode of rockefeller client insights take care everybody <laughs>